0: And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, we're picking up where we left off. Basically, we got up through the middle of verse 9, up to halfway through verse 9. And uh, this is the famine. The famine has hit Egypt. It's been seven great years, and now the famine's hit. And not only is it in Egypt, it's, it's spread. It spread all the way into Canaan and, in fact, has affected Joseph's family back in Canaan. They've come down to Egypt to find grain. They've heard that there's grain down in Egypt. They've come down, the ten brothers. They left Benjamin behind. You remember that? They left Benjamin behind because Dad was going to be, no, you're not taking Benjamin. And so the ten older brothers go down to Egypt. They're appearing in front of Joseph. They don't know it's him. He knows it's them, but they don't know it's him. And then uh, if I could kind of do a little overlap here, reading verses 7, 8, and the first half of 9 to get us going where we're at today. So verse 7 says this, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And so Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. And that was where we left off. It was the first half of verse 9 right there. One of the interesting things about that passage, Matthew Henry says this. He says, God in his providence sometimes seems harsh with those he loves and speaks roughly to those for whom he has yet great mercy in store. So what is he doing? He's taking this and he's making it a type or a picture for us to see. It's as if we're in the place of the brothers, And we're there appearing before the ruler, right? It's as if God over us sometimes might speak harshly to us. And yet it doesn't mean that he intends to destroy us. In fact, uh, as he says there, speaks roughly to those whom he has yet great mercy in store. Some of the passages that have to do with the way that God might deal, sometimes we might feel harshly with us, is uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. The Lord disciplines us. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. God wants to see fruit come from our lives. And sometimes when we think he is the vine, we are the branches. Okay, as long as I'm producing fruit, I'm good. No, you either get cut off or you get pruned. (laughs) Either way, you're getting cut. All right. So sometimes being uh, with God hurts, uh, but it's to seek that we become more fruitful. He's pruning us. Hebrews 12, verse 6 says this, the Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord disciplines those he loves. You see a parent that doesn't discipline their children? That makes you think about that passage. The Lord disciplines those he loves. We are God's children. If we are God's children, we should expect that he will discipline us, not to seek to destroy us, but seek to promote in us uh, better choices next time, right? The seed of application that you have there, number one, seed of application, the Lord disciplines those he loves. The second half of verse 9 then, Then Joseph said to them, You are spies! You have come to see the nakedness of the land. My version says nakedness. Some of you might have other versions that have slightly different language there. He's alleging that they are spies. This is the first time of seven times in this chapter that the word spies is going to be used. All right. In fact, it's the first time in the Bible that spies is used. Uh, So he's accusing them of being spies. And and that that wouldn't be too surprising. Because if you think about it, who's coming to Egypt to buy grain? It's not just the Egyptians. It's the people from the other lands as well. Mm -hmm. If you're the ruler of another land and you want to find out secrets of Egypt, now's a great time to send your guys down there. Oh, we're just here to buy grain. And then, you know, they spy out the land. They see where your weakness is, where you're defenseless, right? So when it says they've come to see the nakedness of the land, uh, one of the handbooks of the Old Testament that I was reading through says, nakedness refers to things which are meant to be hidden. From potential enemies. Uh, That makes sense, all right? So that's why the word nakedness might be used there. Things that are meant to be hidden from potential enemies. A lot of your versions might have something like, uh, you've come to see the weakness of the land, or NIV, you've come to see where our land is unprotected. The New American Standard. You've come to look at the undefended parts of our land, or the New Living Translation. You have come to see how vulnerable our land has become. Now, from their perspective, the Ten Brothers, hearing that, you might think, oh my goodness, what have we done? This ruler thinks that we're spies. We really aren't, but I guess they would make that allegation of somebody as there's a lot of foreigners coming in. But Joseph's perspective, he knows they're not spies. So there's obviously some sort of ruse that Joseph is beginning here with them, right? Verses 10 and 11. Somebody mind reading verses 10 and 11. And they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you, Sherry. Isn't it interesting that they say we are honest men, right? They're alleging we're not spies. We're honest. What's the opposite of a spy? Somebody that would be honest. All right, so they're saying we're honest men. What was Joseph's last interaction with them? Do you remember sold. what that was? Yeah, that wasn't uh, that doesn't seem well, to be the honest, behavior of an honest person. Well, that's honestly the <laughs> We honestly hate you. <laughs> right? Or you remember what happened after Joseph was sold and bye-bye, there he goes. He's going to Egypt and what do they do with his robe? Do you remember what they dip they, in goat's blood. they did why did they dip it in goat blood? Like blood? Ooh, to who? Who were they? His their dad. So they were trying to deceive their dad, right? Mm-hmm. Is that honest? No. If you're trying to deceive dad... There's a little deception going on. That's right. If you're trying to deceive dad, there's a little bit of deception going on. Uh, Number two, seed of application number two, you cannot call yourself an honest person if you deceive. That seems like it should be able to go without saying, right? You cannot call yourself an honest person if you deceive. Why do I bring that up? It's. I mean, thanks, Captain Obvious. You know, of course not. Proverbs 14.5 says, an honest witness does not deceive... But a false witness or a liar, I'm gonna call him a liar, that's what it is, right? A false witness pours out lies. Why why would I say then you cannot call yourself an honest person if you deceive? Because if you ask somebody, let's say you catch somebody on a lie. Not uncommon in this place, right? <laughs> Where we work. Let's say you catch somebody on a lie. If you were to have a moment with them and go up to them and in private say, Hey, do you consider yourself an honest person? I'm I'm gonna bet money they're gonna say yes. I'm gonna bet because most people in their way of thinking they like to think of themselves as I'm a generally good person, right? And so even though they've just lied, they live in that pattern where that's comfortable for them. And they think that somebody who's a bad person does it worse than they do. So they think, oh, my standard is acceptable. My standard's okay. I'm a good person. I'm an honest person. And they just lied. So that's part of the reason I threw it in there. You cannot call yourself an honest person if you deceive. Verse 12. Somebody mind reading that one. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. So again, he's a cute, it's like he didn't even hear what he, what they just said. He's insisting, nope, you're here as spies. You're here to see the nakedness of the land. By the way, this allegation of being a spy, isn't it amazing that this is thousands of years ago, and, and yet we can't cross it off and say, oh, that doesn't happen anymore. Because you and I both know that in the news, we often hear about Americans in general, or sometimes pastors, or sometimes missionaries, uh, people that go to provide relief or aid in another country, and sometimes they're arrested, they're incarcerated, sometimes tortured, even killed. And the allegation is, oh, they were spies. Isn't it strange that here we are, thousands of years removed from this strange incident, and yet it still goes on today. It's not uncommon even today. Verse 13, somebody might read that one. But they replied, your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Who is the youngest? Benjamin. 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 So, yeah, exactly right. They're referring to Benjamin. Benjamin's back with dad, and one is no more. To whom are they referring there? Joseph. Joseph, right? What does that mean, one is no more? Anybody else have a different translation? You're dead. You're dead, right. One is no more. New Living Translation says one is no longer with us. New American Standard says one is no longer alive. And the HCSB says one is no longer living. They are taking for granted that he's dead. Mm -hmm. They sold him as a slave. There he goes to Egypt. But in their minds in those 20 years, they've decided we we just as well killed our brother. He's gone. We haven't heard a thing from him. He hasn't written us a letter. He must be dead. And so they're talking to Joseph. Can you say irony? (laughs) Right? Is this not ironic? They're telling Joseph. One of them's no more. One of them's dead. Well, and what's so and, and it's even, right there. They don't even recognize that the fact that his features resemble their own. Right. They don't, don't even like recognize. Like, yeah, because they have so, this is how I look at it, is that they just have said, you are dead to us in every manner that we don't even recognize. You have the same features we have. Right. right. right uh-huh. <laughs> yep, and, and as we read through the story, you're going to find out they don't have a clue. They don't even have a hint. They're not there's no whispering going, boy, doesn't that guy look familiar? It's not <laughs> happening like that. They they don't have a clue that it's Joseph. Victor P. Hamilton uh, points out though in reading this verse, he says, Of course the brothers are not foolish enough to explain their contribution to the disappearance of the one of the twelve. So when they say one is no more, they don't go so far as to say, and it was our fault, um, you know, we threw him into a pit, we took uh, well, you know, it's an ugly story. We're not gonna tell you. <laughs> they don't go that we far. Left home at an early age. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Verse 14, somebody might read that one. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies. So he's still staying with that spy thing, right? It's as if he's ignoring what they have to say. He's disbelieving what they have to say. He's rejecting what they have to say. They're pleading with him. No, 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 please, please. And he's rejecting that, right? Verse 15, somebody might read that one. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Excellent. Thank you, Cindy. So I want you to recognize that and look at that word tested. In this manner, you shall be tested. So Joseph's got a test prepared. He's preparing a test for them, right? Uh, There's several different words. There are three different words in the Old Testament that have to do with test. This one right here. It's going to appear here, and it's going to appear in the next verse. It's the only place in Genesis where it appears is in this incident, all right? So this type of test, it goes kind of hand-in-hand hand with testing metal for its purity, right? You take metal, and uh, let's say you've got some gold ore, but it's not quite pure. What do you do? You fire it up, right? And you get the gold out, and all that other stuff is dross. You're going to get rid of that. You're purifying the metal. You're getting it and making it purified. All right, so when when I have you see here that it says test, I want you to be thinking the word purified, and also there you see the phrase that says, by the life of Pharaoh. This is actually a phrase that you would use in Egyptian oath-taking. And in fact, uh, they have found uh, monuments where this is actually inscribed on those. So the wording is actually true to, what, to that period and to that place. The equivalent in Hebrew might be as the Lord lives or as my soul lives or as your soul lives. And you can see some of those in 1 Samuel 14.39 or 1 Samuel 17.55 if you wanted to uh, look at those more. When we're talking about being purified, tested or purified, there's a couple other places in in the Bible that I'd commend to you. One is Psalm 6610. For you, O God, tested us. That's the same word as we have here. For you, O God, have tested us. You refined us like silver. That's the psalmist. And then Job 2310 says this. But he, speaking of the Lord, speaking of God, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. So you can kind of see that it has to do with that purifying of precious metals type of thing. Uh, here's what I would say. The seat of application you've got there for number three. The Lord's tests are not intended to see us fail, but to prevail. Prevail. The Lord's tests are not intended to see us fail, but to prevail. When God tests us, he doesn't want to ground us out. He doesn't want us to fail. In fact, his intention is that we be purer, purer, all right, that we be more pure at at the end of it as a result of having gone through the test. That's God's intention when he tests us. Now, it's a different story with the devil. (laughs) The devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy. God wants to see us succeed and prevail, all right? That's his intention when he tests us. One question. Sure. Does that apply not only when he tests us, but when we um, are tempted? Yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, I think it is, says that no temptation has overtaken us except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we are bear, uh, able to bear, but he will provide a way of escape. So when God, when God has for us going through periods of temptation, mm-hmm. he provides an escape route an opportunity to escape he's never going to funnel us into uh, a temptation that's going to destroy us or that that there's no escape from so yeah when he tests when when he tests us and when we run into times of temptation he still intends for us to come through that to succeed in coming through that rather than getting destroyed great question first corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 Verse 16, send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison. Oh, that word, prison. Uh, that's that's the same word that describes the place where, let's see, Joseph was, where the baker was, where the cupbearer was. That's in the same place, all right, or at least the same term. And you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested. There's that word again. To see whether there is any truth, because they said they're honest. And he doesn't think, um, you know what, the last time I met you guys, or the last time I was with you guys, I don't remember you being honest. All right, To see whether there's any truth in you or else, by the life of Pharaoh, there's that oath again, surely you are spies. By the way, does it mention in this verse how long they'll be kept in prison? It doesn't, right? It sounds like, oh, dear. <laughs> this isn't going to be fun. All right. So it looks like he is setting up What well, we say this is a ruse that Joseph is setting up. And now we see kind of what's going on. His ruse is intended to see if Benjamin's okay. He's saying, this is what you need to do. You need to bring my little brother, my full brother. So he, he doesn't trust that his brothers haven't done something similarly horrendous to Benjamin that they did to him. So the test is, all right, you say this is the case, that you have a little brother back home with dad, bring him down here. All of you are going to be in prison. One of you is going to go back. You bring Benjamin down. Then maybe I'll believe you. Right? It's kind of what he's saying. That's a paraphrase, obviously. Verse 17, somebody might remember that. So he put them all together in prison three days. Excellent. Thank you, Sherry. Nice short sentence, right? <laughs> put them all in prison for three days. I love, I love little side Bible studies, all right? But this one, we, we're not going to go down. I'm going to give it to you for your own, to commend it to you for your own study if you want. Go through the Bible and look at all the places where it says Three days. Look up for that that phrase, three days. It's really pretty neat Bible study. But I'll just point out a few of them. I'm just going to really limit this. I'm going to make it a really small one. We had Abraham. Remember when he was called by God to take your son, your only son, and go kill him, right? Go offer him as a sacrifice. From the time that he heard that bad news to the time when the lamb was provided by God, it was three days. That was three days of thinking, there's no hope in this situation. That was three days of going through like the valley of the shadow of death, if you if you could say that. I mean, that was three days of saying, I'm gonna lose my son at the end of this. And what was it like getting his son back at the end of three days? Well, it was like a resurrection. It was like getting his son back from the dead because he had counted his son, he's gonna be dead, you know? And for three days he's thinking, My son's dead. He's as good as dead. And at the end he gets his son back. That's like a resurrection. How about another one? Let's uh in the Old Testament, Jonah, how long is he in the belly of the great fish? He's in the belly of the great fish for three days. Uh, You think that was a pretty desperate situation? Yeah. You think it was pretty dark and hopeless, miserable to be in that fish for three days? Yeah. You think there's any hope of getting out? No. If I'm in that situation, I'm thinking I'm going to die here. It seems like this is the end for me. And what ends up happening? Three days later, he's out of the fish. It's like he got his life back. Mm -hmm. Do you remember Jesus? And they say, what sign do you show us to prove who you are and all these things that you're doing? Show us a sign. He says a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign no sign will be given this generation except for the sign of Jonah what what's he referring to what was he doing he was painting a picture that he was going to fulfill the same kind of sign that happened in Jonah what happens he dies and how long is he in the grave three days days in a place in the grave you would think that's pretty hopeless right if you're a follower of Jesus and your your leaders in the grave okay this looks like there's no end it's hopeless. This is dark, miserable place that we're in. What happens three days later? He rises from the dead. All right? It turns it on its ear. In each of those situations, three days makes a great big difference, right? You go into the situation and you think, there's no hope. It's a dark, miserable place that I'm in right now, and I don't see any hope for anything better. And three days later, everything is changed. Everything is changed. What would I say? Seat of application that you got right here. Seat of application, a lot can change in three days. Now, I'll tell you this. I don't know what you do with that. A lot can change in three days. I just feel like somebody needs to hear that. Maybe you're in a situation. Give it three days. All right? I don't know. Is that what God's saying to somebody? So a lot can change in three days. All right? James Montgomery Boyce says this. Although we are not given all the details we might wish in Genesis 37... It's not unreasonable to think that when Joseph's brothers saw him coming toward them in his envied tunic, they probably rushed at him, accusing him of having come to spy out their corrupt behavior and report on them to their father. I want to pause in reading that and take you to what he's talking about. Go to Genesis 37. Genesis chapter 37. We're going to start with verse 2. And we're going to start at the end. Well, I'll read the whole thing. All right. Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. This is the genealogy of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. You can imagine how that was around the dinner table that night you little snitch, you little rat, you know, as soon as dad's not looking, I'm going to take you out back and I'm going to, you know. Joseph's the little brother at that time, all right? And he's tattling, he's spying on and tattling on the bigger brothers. Jump down to verse 13. Verse 13, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. Then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. That's what James Montgomery Boyce is talking about right here. What do you suppose the brothers were saying about Joseph when they see him coming? You guys remember that. We got some of those words. Oh, here comes that dreamer. That was one of the things. Do you suppose they could have also included, but we don't have written down in chapter 37. Do you suppose they could have also included I bet he's coming to spy on us, and he's going to tell Dad all the bad stuff that he can possibly come up with. So James Montgomery Boy, thinking about that situation, says they probably rushed at him, accusing him of having come to spy out their corrupt behavior and report on them to their father. As I say, we are not told they did this, but it is reasonable to think that they may have done so, and if they did, it would explain why Joseph immediately thought of accusing them of the same thing. You are spies. Moreover, if the brothers had accused Joseph of having been a spy for their father, the lad would certainly have protested that he was no spy, just like they're doing in front of him, that he was only concerned for their welfare. The same thing the brothers were forced to say later, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. Your servants are honest men, not spies. To carry the parallel a bit further, it is clear that Joseph's being cast into the pit in the earlier story, chapter 37, has a parallel in his putting his brothers into prison in the second. It's like it's all playing out again, but the roles are reversed. Do you see that? Joseph, the spy, tattling on, on his brothers to dad, and now he goes to the bigger brothers, and they're going, you're a You little spy, you little punk, come here. Let me take that coat of many colors off you, and I got an idea. Let's kill you. (laughs) And it has to do with them protesting, though. In this story, we have them protesting. So between verses 17 and verse 18, we have three days transpire. Three days go by. They've been in prison for three days. And remember, what were they told in the three days that they've been in prison? At the beginning of that going into prison thing, they were told one of you is going to go back to dead. You suppose the conversation in prison might have something to do with who's going to go, who's going to stay? Let's see, nine of us have to stay, one of us gets to go, uh, how are we going to decide who it is, right? So Joseph comes back to them, verse 18, somebody mind reading that one? Then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. Excellent, thank you, Gabriela. Do this and live, for I fear God. The word for God there is Elohim. Do this and live, for I fear God. No, I'm thinking, you know, three days ago, when you put them all in prison, that was probably satisfying, (laughs) right? It's payback. I'm thinking if Joseph had any temptation to get revenge on his brothers, the temptation is probably strongest right now. They're right here in my hand. In fact, there's so much in my hand, I've got them in prison. And for three days, they get to think about their wrongs, and he gets to think about what am I going to do with them. So it sounds like he's got pretty good control, though, over himself. He could have had them killed on the spot. He's got that kind of power. So he didn't do that. So at least he's refraining from that much. But no matter at what point it happened, it seems that at some point in those three days, he has decided, you know what? Vengeance is not mine. It's God's arena. It's not my place to seek revenge on my brother's. Because by the time he comes here, he's changed the plan. We'll see in the next verse, he's changed the plan. Vengeance is mine. I will repair is what the Lord would say to us. Paul says that in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. It's also in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. God says vengeance is his arena. Mm -hmm. It's his prerogative. It's what he takes care of. We are not the ones to come up with great plans of revenge. That's not our role. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're to give it over to God. So it looks like Joseph, by that third day, he's decided it's God's. I'm going to totally give this over to God. It's up to God. God, what would you have me to do? What would you have to turn out from this situation? He turns it over to God. What I would say is, uh, as you fill in your blank seat of application number five, let God be the one to repay with vengeance. Let God be the one to repay with vengeance. So it looks like Joseph is letting go of vengeance and letting God work out his will. Verse 19. Somebody mind reading that one? If you are an honest man, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, or the rest of you go and take rain back for your starving households. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So, what has changed? What was the original plan? How many were to stay? How many were to go? Nine and one. Nine and one. Nine nine were going to do what? Stay in prison. Right. Nine were going to stay in prison. One was going to go. What's the plan now? It's the opposite. Nine are going to go back, one is going to stay in prison. Why? Can you think of any good reasons why he might change change it up? What are some possibilities? Safety on the ride back on the right. Safety on track. the ride back. That's a great one. Yeah, you send one brother and he gets waylaid by some thieves or something on the way back. Well, the whole plan's shot. Right? Okay, so good. That's Maybe that's one. more so to see if they're uh, going to be tempted to leave that one brother there and not go oh, back. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah, <laughs> they've already expressed that. Right, because when it was the whole gang versus one, Joseph was on the outs, right? He was the one. They abandoned him. Maybe if they leave one behind, it'll be a good test, too. Mm -hmm. Are they going to abandon this brother? Are they going to let this one go as well? Good. Anything else? Just thinking maybe it would alleviate some tension or sorrow from the family. Good. When they go back. Right, because Dad's had a hard time, right, when one of his sons was reported to be dead. Could you imagine the next report? nine you've been deprived of nine of your sons yeah just might be thinking that might kill my dad <laughs> how about we not do that <laughs> and why did they come down there get to get grain to all they need it all carry back good yeah so nine would be helpful to carry more grain back yeah. so there's all kinds of good reasons why he might have switched we don't we don't know why he did Some of the other ones that some of the other commentators point out, they say uh, one of them might be nine voices trying to convince Dad to give up Benjamin might be more persuasive than just one voice, right? Uh, Another one, actually, you guys got all the other one, I think. Well done. Yeah, you got them all. So who's going to do the choosing? Who's going to choose who stays behind? Because it sounded like before that it was going to be left up to them who they were going to choose to be the one to go back to Dad to get Benjamin, bring Benjamin back. It sounded like it was going to be their choice. But something seems to have changed there, too. Look at verses 20 and 21. Verse 20, And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. And they did so. What does that mean? And they did so. Did they do the choosing right there? I'm not sure. It's not clear. We're going to move on. Verse 21. Somebody mind reading that? Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Excellent. Thank you, Sherry. Who's doing the talking there? Anyone in particular? It doesn't say. It's no one in particular. It sounds like as a group, they pretty much all have the same report to one another, right? They're all feeling, man, we, we really blew it with our brothers. This is God's way of punishing us. It sounds like they are saying to one another as opposed to one person stood up and said something and the rest go, "Oh, yeah, well, that's your opinion. You know? right. No, it sounds like that's the consensus of the group there. That they're guilty concerning their brother. And they saw his anguish, the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. When did that happen? They saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us? When they were selling him into slavery. Yeah. When they ripped his robe off, when they threw him in the pit, when they were talking about killing him, when they sold him into slavery. None of this is reported back there in chapter 37. We get an extra glimpse here of what was happening in that picture over there. (laughs) So you can imagine him being in the pit, please, please, pleading to his brothers, please don't do this, just as his brothers are pleading to him now. No, 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 we're not spies, we're not spies. Please, please hear us. Please listen to what we're trying to say. It's as if the whole thing's being played out down to the details, right? Uh, One of the other interesting things here is that uh, it says here, this is the only time in Genesis that a sinful person is actually said to confess his sin. They're confessing that we've done wrong. Mm-hmm. We've done wrong. And it's the only time in Genesis that this actually happens. First John one nine would be our New Testament reference for this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is one of those things that leads to forgiveness and even salvation. We see it in our lives. We see it in the way that God operates with us, just as we see it happening in here. Their first step is confession of their sin. Their second step, they're going to find forgiveness. And their third step, that family's going to get saved. It's kind of cool how we see a little picture going on of what happens with God in our lives as well. And what do we need to do with our sins then? Are we holding on to sins that we need to confess? If we are, we need to confess those to God. What does it mean to confess? It means to agree with God. I blew it. I messed up. I recognize that what I did or what I said or what I thought doesn't honor you. I was living for myself and not for you, God. We're confessing, we're agreeing with him that what we've done, it doesn't meet his standards. And then what happens? We renounce, or in other words, repent. We turn away from those sins. What are we doing? We're turning away from our selfish choices and turning to a selfless choice, to submitting ourselves to God. So salvation comes from confessing our sins and finding forgiveness. Seat of application, number six, seat of application, we all need to confess our sins. Who was speaking in verse 21? Yeah, it was kind of a general thing. It was one to another. Who's speaking in verse 22? Reuben. the firstborn. Somebody might read in that one. Uh, Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. Oh, thank you, Gabriella. So Reuben, the firstborn, he's speaking to the rest of the group, right? He's speaking to the other nine brothers. And he's saying, I told you guys we shouldn't have done it way back 20 years ago. I still remember it like it was yesterday. I said, don't kill the boy. (laughs) And you remember when we read through the story, Reuben's intention was to come back to the pit Mm -hmm. and rescue Joseph and restore him to his father. And he didn't get to do that. And you remember, we were asking, why would Reuben do this? Well, because he had just really offended his dad by sleeping with Bill. All right. So, Reuben had some ground. He had to make up a little bit there. So, here's Reuben. It's 20 years later. He's saying, You guys should have followed my idea. Adiv- no. What's Reuben doing here? There's one of two things. Maybe he's speaking on behalf of the whole group and saying, We all blew it. And I told you guys, we all knew that we shouldn't have done that. And yet we did it anyway. Or he's trying to say, Uh, I don't want to be the one to stay in prison. (laughs) I should be able to be able to go back home because at least I had the idea to save the guy, right? No matter what he's doing, he doesn't know he's saying this in front of Joseph. He doesn't know that Joseph is listening to this, right? And why is that? If you see verse 23, what does it say there? They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He was using an interpreter. He's speaking to his interpreter. He's learned Egyptian by now. He's speaking to his interpreter in Egyptian mm-hmm. and the interpreter's putting it into the language of Canaan into the into Hebrew. Mm-hmm. He's not speaking to them in Hebrew. That would kind of give it away. Right? They'd be like, wow, this guy's really smart. We come from Canaan. It's a long ways away. It's 250 miles. It took us a month to get here or wh- however long it took. And this guy's speaking to us in Canaan? Wow, I wonder where he got his education. That would might tip him off, right? No, he's speaking to them in, in Egyptian through an interpreter. They don't have a clue, it's Joseph. So you get right? <laughs> that's right. you got interpreters in here. One of the oldest professions in the book. <laughs> Ancient science. That's right. Oh, that's so good. Verse 24. Somebody minds reading that one? And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Excellent. Thank you, Sherry. Why did he turn himself away and weep? What are some possibilities? He was just about to tie up Simeon. Okay, maybe he knows he's just about to pounce, right? I mean <laughs> that he's going to that he's actually going to bind one of them and put him in, yeah. in prison. What else? He emotion gets emotional. Yeah. What would make him emotional? What just happened? Reuben had something to say. I wonder if he ever knew what Reuben just said. That part where Reuben says, "Did I not speak to you saying, do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore behold his blood is now required of him. Maybe he didn't know Reuben was trying to defend him. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he's crying because of the verse before that, verse 21, where they're confessing we are truly guilty concerning our brother. That would be a big change from the brothers he remembers. For we saw the anguish of his soul. Maybe he's crying because he remembers being in the pit, crying out to them, please don't do this to me, when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. We don't know why he's crying. But he's got lots of good reasons to cry because all the memories. Came because back, all the memories. You know, I think. I think you're. You might be. I think you're right. Hmm. It's It's all been stirred up again. It so he was hoping to forget all this. He thought he had forgotten all this, and here it is, right in his face again. So he he weeps, and then uh, he doesn't weep right there. It sounds like initially he just turns away, but then no, he returns. So it sounds like he's left the room, or he's left their presence, and then he comes back. And uh, he's trying not to cry in front of them, because that might tip him off, too, that this oh, hey, he's being soft with us. No, he hides that part with him. And then uh, he binds Simeon before their eyes. Simeon gets to be the one to stay. I wonder why he chose Simeon. Yeah. A couple possibilities. One is Simeon, if you remember, he was the guy, that, he was one of the two that killed all those Shechemites. Maybe Joseph was like, you know what? That guy's ruthless and mean. He deserves to be in prison, maybe. Or maybe he's remembering how that really offended Dad. He loved his dad, right? And then what happened? When they killed all the Shechemites, Dad was like, you two brothers, talking about Simeon and Levi, you guys have made me a stench in the nostrils of all these people around. And maybe Joseph took offense that his dad was put in that position by this guy. Or maybe Simeon is the secondborn, and Benjamin's the secondborn. And it'd be like, oh... I'm concerned about the second born of my mom. You're the second born of the competing mom. You'd be a natural pick for me, too. It doesn't tell us, but there's a couple possibilities. All right, let's close the prayer. We'll have to pick it up from here next time we get together. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time, and we pray, God, that you would help us. We come before you now and we confess our sins. Lord, we confess our sins as individuals, the things that we've said that have disappointed you, the things that we've thought, the things that we've done. We ask for your forgiveness, Lord, and we're grateful that you are so merciful, that you have forgiveness in store for us. And Lord, not only do we come before you as individuals seeking your forgiveness, we come before you as representatives of a nation, of a country that needs your forgiveness. And Lord, we come before you confessing the sins of a country that has turned our backs on you. Lord, we trust that you are the same as when the words were written in Chronicles that says... If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven I'll forgive their sins and I'll heal their land. Our land needs to be healed, Lord. Our sins need to be forgiven. Our prayers need to be heard. And we come before you saying, I identify myself with your people. And as a, as a person, as people who identify themselves in that group, we are the ones that need to humble ourselves. We are the ones that need to pray and to seek your face. We are the ones that need to turn from our wicked ways. Thank you, God, for your challenging word. Thank you for your loving mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, you guys have a wonderful week. All right.